This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. I would invite you to turn in here to the book of Exodus, to take your Bible if you brought it with you, to grab the one if you didn't in the rack in front of you, and find the second book in the Bible, Exodus. I am glad that you are here this morning. We are beginning what will be, I hope, a long and rich sermon series through the book of Exodus. I have wanted to preach through this book for many, many years, and I have avoided it because I'm afraid of it. But I've conquered my fear through the Lord, and I think by his grace we will do it together. Uh, The reason I am afraid of it is because it is such a powerful, important, fundamental book to knowing our God and to seeing who he is providentially over all that he has created. This is a very, very important book for us as Christians to know and to study. Because even though it is ancient, it is still the story of our faith. And I don't mean the past of our faith. I mean there is much for our faith now in Exodus. And so pray for me. Pray for us. Pray that we would have a bigger view of God and more faith in him with each passing week in Exodus. The first thing to know about this book is it is part of a larger story. And I mean that in two senses. Uh, In the broadest way, the Bible is one main, has one main line. The Bible is the description of how the one true God loves people. And even though people are disobedient in sin... Our God makes a way for us to be redeemed and united to him forever. The Bible is just telling that one storyline the whole way. Now, in a tighter sense, Exodus is part of what's called the Pentateuch. This is the first five books of the Bible. Like I said, they're fundamental, they're foundational for God's people. They tell his early people where they came from how he drew them up and out, how he formed them into a people, and what the covenant community of God is to be like. And these are meant to be read together. And so in a sense, when we start Exodus, the second of those five books, we are coming in to the middle of the story. And so when I, when I say the middle, you might be curious, if you're newer to your Bible reading, which is great, It's a good place to be because it's exciting because everything gets to be new for you. When you start reading the Bible, maybe you do know this one thing, though. You probably know that the Bible is going to be a lot about Jesus. And so if you were to start reading these books, the Pentateuch or other places in the Old Testament, a a, a question that you're probably early on going to ask is, well, where's Jesus? If you're just kind of start reading the Bible in order, you start with Genesis and then you get to Exodus and um, then it's Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on and so forth. And then you'll, you'll say, well, I, I don't see Jesus anywhere. Why is it like this? Why should I care if this Christian faith is all about Jesus? 
Why does he not show up until, you know, three-quarters of the way almost through the book? So what's the first part for? Well, let me tell you what it's not actually for. The first part of the Bible is not simply to teach you morality. It's not to show you that, you know, God tried one thing, but that didn't work out so well. So then he's going to come and get it right with Jesus. The reason we need the whole Bible is God is a big God. He has a nature and a character. And we need lots of revelation to see what he's like, what he's doing, and who he is. And then, a very big part of the early portion of the Bible is to show, up, to show us that God is holy. And we don't match up at all with him. So the Bible is the story of God's taking us at our deepest points of weakness and providing for us, being for us exactly what we need. And when we start reading the Pentateuch, it puts down the foundation for that. Exodus in particular will show us how God can come, how he can come to, how he can rescue, and how he can give hope to anyone who takes him up on his offer to live by grace through faith. And so the point of Exodus is that God will make you a promise to remain your God forever, and God never breaks his promises. That's the point of Exodus. He makes a promise to be the God of anybody who calls on him, comes to him by faith to be their God forever, and he never breaks his promises. There's one more thing to know before we start reading that I just kind of want to say. Uh, and, and, And that is that when God makes promises... And when he delivers on his word, and we're going to see this in the, in the early part of Exodus. This is the other thing that you need to know about faith. When God delivers on his word, it's often going to look very different than what we expect it to. And just as often, God is not going to make things easy for us. If you are to become a Christian if you're not one, if you are to continue as a Christian if you already are one, you need to know that God is working a plan in the world, universe, and in your life. But that plan will very often look different from the way that you want it to. But here's what we need to know. God is there, always at work, And always doing good. Even though we might not understand how or why, faith teaches us, helps us, grows us in believing in the presence and in the goodness of God. We want to see everything. But life in God has to be, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, It has to be lived by faith. And that means, folks, that we need to continually learn and to put our trust 
in God. We need to believe that he hears our prayers. We, we need to believe, and our hope is that he will honor our faithfulness. And then we're given assurance that he's sovereign and that he's good. All of these things come from Exodus. The sovereignty and the goodness of God is on full display here. And really, as the the book starts, these are the two points that we're given. God is sovereign, and he is good. He is there, and he is at work, even when we don't see him, and even though we don't understand how. So over these first paragraphs of Exodus, despite his seeming absence, we will see that God is there. And then where things seem to be in, in just utter ruin, Even there, God is working for good. So this isn't just important history. This remains the way God is with us today. But church, we also need to see this, hear this. We have it better than the people who lived in this time of the Exodus. We have Exodus in our Bibles Plus the rest. The Israelites here, we're going to see that they had just a little. And and for them, though, God says that that little was enough. But let's not lose sight of the grace of having so much more. We have all that they had and we have the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ who is soon to come again. And so if if they can have faith and be built in their faith in God through what he's doing then, surely we can be built all the more in what he's doing now. God hasn't even done everything he's going to do yet. There's still more to come, but we can trust that for us, what God has given, just like these people, what God has given is enough. And we can still hope that he plans to do and will do all that he's promised to do. So with that, Let's look down at our Bibles. We're not going to do this with all of Exodus. We just won't have the kind of the physical time together. I am going to read all of our portion today. Uh, there, there are going to be weeks, Lord willing, where we do like five, six chapters at a time. I just won't be able to read all of that for us aloud. But I think this is foundational enough that we should do this together. And um, I'm going to read a little bit, and I'm going to break, and then I'll read the entire rest, and I'll talk about those two things. God is sovereign. And he's there. And he's working and he's good. He's sovereign in there, working and good. So let's look at Exodus 1, starting at verse 1. Just follow along as I read this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. I'm going to explain all this. Each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
Now we need to stop here. This is a good break point and do some background. Remember, Exodus is part of a larger arc in the first five books of a story that they are as kind of one unit telling. So who are these people and why should we at all care about them? The, the Israelites that we have here, these are the descendants of Abraham. And we meet a man who would later be called Abraham, that's not his name originally, in Genesis 12. And the first thing that we are told about Abraham is that his family, the family that he comes from, is an important family and traces its line all the way back to the beginning. And so here's just kind of a simplified version of what you need to know about his line. Abraham is a descendant of Noah. Noah built the ark and essentially restarted the human race after the great flood. Noah was a descendant of Adam, the first man who who did start the human race. Both Adam and Noah are given the same charge in the first part of Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply, increase over the earth. So they have that in common, Adam and Noah. But the other thing that they also have in common is that very shortly, I mean really shortly after they have been given that responsibility to multiply and fill the earth, they defy God. All the way back in Genesis 3, just after Adam does, and the first sin enters the world, and this this should tell us something about the merciful heart of God. In Genesis 3, there is a hint toward the gospel. Just after the man and the woman do what God has commanded them not to do in sin, in fact, this, is, this, this, this hint of the gospel is actually in the explanation of their punishment for their sin. He alludes to the promise God does of victory over sin. That's Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And from that point forward, the Old Testament is essentially doing two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it is showing us the depravity of man, and our utter lack of hope within ourselves. The Old Testament is just a record of the wrongs of humanity. On the other hand, simultaneously to our wrong, the Old Testament is clarifying, revealing, unfolding the plan of redemption. We are being told that we are deeply almost hopelessly sinful and we are being shown what hope there is for victory over sin. And the reason Abraham is important is he's a big part of that plan. God chooses Abraham and right away, just in case you're wondering what kind of man this is, we see that Abraham wasn't chosen because he's upright or godly, because he's in any other way impressive. But this is what God tells Abraham right away when he chooses him. I will make you, this is Genesis 12, 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. That's the promise. That's the calling. Now, here's what you need to know about Abraham a little bit more. Uh, Like I said, he wasn't personally impressive. Uh, Basically, after this, the first thing he does, he gets this promise from God, and then the very first thing he does is he behaves like a coward, he lies, and he endangers his wife. So this wasn't a man that impressed God, and so God gave him all these things. Just the opposite. Uh, The Bible later says that as God repeats the promise to Abraham, this is what Abraham does do. It says he believed God, and that belief was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That means that what inclines God toward us is not you know, our, our limited, often just pitiful attempts at morality. It's not piety that impresses God in us or draws him toward us. It's faith. Abraham believed God, put his faith in God, and that is what God desired of him. The New Testament takes this And says that what God promised to Abraham, and Abraham received by faith, that's available to now anyone who places their faith in God. Everybody who places their faith in God becomes part of the family, inherits the promise given to Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham? We see later that the, is that the promises, the covenant with Abraham has unfolded a little bit. He's promised three things. He's promised a family. He's promised a place to call home. And the blessing, he's promised that God will remain with him as his God forever. And friends, that is still the promise that God holds out to us today. Family, place to call home, to be our God forever. You can be single, you can be an orphan, you can be lost in every, alone in every way, but by Christ, God will still take you into his family when you come to him by faith, and his family is massive. A land, he will bring you into his kingdom. In heaven, you shall live forever in a place prepared For the saints, yes, but for you specifically also. And then it says he will dwell with us forever. Once God's your God, he never stops being your God. That promise of Abraham is still available to us today. Now, just kind of blunt, that's all fantastic. But if you're following along, you're saying uh, that answer doesn't quite, you know, kind of, fulfill the question of why do we have everything you know that's all well and good but we've done genesis you know kind of we're up through genesis 15 in the bible why do we need the rest at this point if god can just do that why onward from genesis in the bible why exodus after it there are two big reasons that is the promise but first like abraham we have a promise but like him we have a lot of sin 
and that sin must be atoned for. That's how God blesses the world through Abraham. The redeemer of sin will come from his line. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. But it will take a while. Remember what I said earlier, God often doesn't unfold or do things in the way that we want him to. And that's what happened to Abraham's family. It's actually what God told Abraham would happen to his family. After he comes and kind of details this covenant a little bit more, God gives Abraham a dream. And it says this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And two generations later, that's exactly what happens to them. There are 70 in his family a couple of generations later, and famine drives them to Egypt. At first, they're favored there and things go well for them, but eventually that fades. And that's where we're back into in verse 8. So look down at verse 8. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Uh, Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom in Raamses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Wicked. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. 
The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter, daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, the two things that we are being shown here is that God is present and he is working for good. The easiest, most natural thing in the world for us to do when things don't go our way, when things get hard, when there is suffering, is to start saying, how can God be in this? That's what's happening here. These are Abraham's descendants. God made a covenant with them. They're supposed to have, remember, land and blessing. And now they're oppressed as slaves in a foreign place. It's been 400 years. And now there is a programmatic genocide against their men. How is God in that? How can there be any goodness in this at all? I want to point you to three quick places. First, where is the first mention of God in this book? Where is the first mention of God in this book? We have it in verse 17. The Hebrew midwives feared God so they wouldn't commit murder. Is God there to do anything with that? Just kind of asking, they feared God, but is he going to do anything because of that? Is he even there? Uh, really quick, let's, let's stop and talk about just the remarkable steadfastness and, and long-suffering of the midwives. Uh, from an earthly point of view, everything about their circumstances says that, that they don't really have to worry about fearing God anymore. Doesn't seem like he's worrying about them. 400 years, slavery, foreign, foreigners. But they still fear him. It's remarkable faith. And then look at the chain of reaction that this starts off. Everything happens because of these faithful midwives. And I don't mean everything in Exodus. I mean everything in the rest of the world happens because of the faithful, faithfulness of the midwives. Uh, just for us. Never doubt that seemingly small obediences may be a big part of God's plan. 
you don't know how even your obedience in something that you don't quite understand might be used by God generations forward in your family, widespread in the life of others. Always be faithful to God, but know, have the hope that maybe even your faithfulness does something that you can't possibly expect that it does. That's what happens with the midwives. So now three things that God does because of their faithfulness. Number one, verse 20, God deals kindly with the midwives. What does that mean? The people multiplied and grew very strong. The fulfillment of God's promise comes through the midwives. And it's going to put the Israelites on this path where the Messiah will be born in the land where they promised. So remember, Abraham has promised a large family in one place, uh, like grains on the sand, like grains of sand, like stars in the sky. That will be the amount of the descendants of Abraham. Well, when they go into Egypt, there's only 70 of them. I can count 70 stars. If I had sand, 70 wouldn't even look like much. Conservative estimates put the number, put the number of Israelites in the Exodus, they go from 70 and 400 years later, conservative estimates put this somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million people. God is working out his plan. The second thing that God does, verse 21, is because they feared him, he gives them, he gives them families of their own. In other words, they enjoyed the blessing of God. So it, it may not be material. It may not feel like even a blessing. But church, it's never the wrong decision to obey God. Never. And what God does promise is he will bless those who are faithful to him. Now that faithfulness, you have to hear me say this, that faithfulness may not look how we're hoping it looks. It may, but it may not. But, but I want us all to see things this way. The blessing of God, so when we, what does it look like for God to bless you? The blessing of God isn't, is not what God gives us. It's that God comes near to us. So you can have every desirable thing the world has to offer. What we often say when somebody has a lot of things that the world can offer is, wow, are they blessed. But without God in the middle of all that, you don't have anything that truly matters. On the flip side, you can have a life that most people think is pretty simple maybe even pretty miserable. Certainly nobody's going to be envying you. But if you have Christ, you are full, you are provided for, and you are wealthy, full up beyond measure. He blessed the midwives. Number three, Moses is born. And look at what happens. Pharaoh's edict is toss the kids into the river. How does God save Moses? He's put into the river what Pharaoh meant for destruction. 
is actually what God uses for salvation. The theme of Joseph's life, who we just heard about, is you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. When Christ goes to the cross, the Romans and Satan meant that for destruction, but through that, God brings salvation. Don't miss the progression here. Moses is going to become the greatest prophet of God's people before Jesus comes as the Messiah. He's either never born or he's killed right away without the faith of the midwives, without the courage of his own mother, and then through the goodness of God, I mean, it's remarkable, he's directed right back to her. So let's just take a minute for this. It's it's so easy to read the Bible and sort of read it like, wow, this is an old story, so distant, we almost read it like like it is fiction, but it's not, it really happened. Just put yourself in this. A woman had a baby. She recognized immediately, it, it kind of says there that the baby was special to her. She recognized there was something remarkable about him. She hides him first at great personal sacrifice, could have been ba- great personal sacrifice. Probably figured she'd be killed if she's found out to have the baby. And then she comes to the point where her only choice is to float him down the river. Now, it seems like she had a little plan going because she sent her, other da- her, she sent her oldest daughter there to kind of see how this would go. But that doesn't change the fact that she has no idea how this is going to work out. So she releases this basket into a river, wondering if she's just sent her own baby to his death. This is agonizing. Yet here's more of the providence of God. He's back in her arms in what seems like minutes. This is minutes later. Only God can do that. Only God could do something like that. Now maybe you're saying, well, well, that's real great for Moses. But Exodus was so long ago and here I am. And I don't know if God is there, and I don't know that he will do good in my life. I mean, that's all well and good for Moses' mom. What about me? Uh, Let me give us one thing each uh, that I hope will help. Uh, One way to see that God is there, and another to know that he is good. Even when we, we, we may want to doubt both. One way to see that God is there and one way to see that he is good. So first, I started saying a little earlier that if we're going to live as Christians, we have to realize that our tendency, our pull, will always be to try to live by sight, not faith. But it's precisely by faith that we learn to really live and we come to see God. Uh, Hebrews 11 is this record of of many great movements of the redemption story. And the refrain of that chapter is by faith. It's it's never by sight. Every great movement of God has always needed to come by faith. Near the beginning of that chapter. And just so we're clear about what we're going to read in these repetitions. So it's, you know, by faith Abraham did this, or by faith Moses did that. 
As we're about to read in this chapter, if you've read Hebrews 11, go home and read it this afternoon. This is how the writer sets that up. This is Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It will feel different than you are used to. And this is actually really counterintuitive, is, is it not? The only way you can come to see God and to know him is by laying down your need to have him prove himself to you. And so here's what you can do. I, I, I won't pretend to know everything that has caused each person in this room to wonder if God is there. Or how, how you've been asking, you know, how can God be in this? But if you want to know God, if you want to see him, if you want to move from assuming that he couldn't be there, the way to do that is not say, how could God possibly be in this? But to begin asking, where is he in this? Just that one simple change. Ask, where is God in this? If you can make that change, I, I think you'll start seeing actually a lot of evidence of him, and it will become clearer and clearer the more that you do that. And this can be really difficult. When you're in the midst of extreme hardship, it can be so difficult to say, well, where, where is God in this? But if you can start doing that, and you don't have to do it on your own, one of the most helpful things that God gives Christians is brothers and sisters in Christ in their local church. Ask a Christian friend to help you see him. Go to someone and say, I am struggling to see God in my hardship. There is suffering. I, this is tragic. And not in, a, not in a pithy way, not in a way that minimizes this, but, but would you help me to see where God is in this? Sometimes different eyes from another person helps. So make that move. Instead of saying, how can God be in this? Start saying, where is God in this? And, and when you do that, I've just, I've just talked to so many Christians that, that astound me with their faith, and it's so encouraging and hopeful. Because even in the midst of just the most horrific of circumstances, they will see things like, I, we saw the goodness of God in this small way. And the small ways become medium ways, and the medium ways become bigger ways. Just get in the habit of asking, where is God in this? Because then you'll start to see him. Second thing, last one. A way to know that God is good. Uh, this one is predicated on recognizing that we have limitations. I have children. And my children ask me for things every day. All day. They're just asking me for things all the time. And here's the deal. As a dad, I actually do like to say yes. But sometimes I say no. Because I am their father. And while I don't have it all, I do have from them, in comparison to them, I have a lot more life experience. I have a broader, more advanced perspective than they do. And there are times that I know 
even though I would kind of like to say yes, I know that saying no to them is actually what is best for them. We're the children, God is the Father, and you can multiply the differences in our perspective by an infinite degree. So it's predicated, this is predicated on recognizing that God is God and we are us. You have to know your limitations. That's the backdrop. We have limits, he has none. The side view of what I'm about to say is that if you will analyze your life and try to find the places in your past where you thought you wanted to have one thing, but knowing what you do now, you see that what God was doing was actually better for you, it will give you some confidence as you approach the future. I hope each of us has some kind of those things where we look back and go, I, wanted, I thought I wanted that so badly. But God said, no, he didn't give it to me. He did something else, and now I see that that was better. That's the side view. So the back view, the side view. Now the future view. The full kind of front view is to look at the cross. If you want to know where the goodness of God is, look at the cross. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you are in Christ, you are there because God has given his very son to put you there. And if that is not enough for you to know that he is ultimately and fully good toward you, then nothing he does will ever convince you of his goodness. But on the other hand, if you can look at the cross and say, God, you did not withhold from me that which is most precious to you. Surely you will give me what are obviously smaller things that you know I need in your goodness. I can have confidence and faith in that. So if you are wondering Where is the goodness of God? Begin to answer that question at the cross. If you're a Christian, he's already done that for you. If you are not a Christian, you can have the cross. Your sins can be nailed to it. They can be paid for. And you can have new life now. And then one day you'll fully live in his kingdom forever. That's the promise he has to be good to you. God is good And he does good. And let's remember that the Israelites longed to have the promise and see that day. We have that and more than they hoped for. We have more than the Israelites ever thought that they would know of God. And so thank God for his goodness. Rest in the promise that he will never leave his people. And here's the final word, come to him by faith. Let us pray. God, make us people of faith who hope in you. We thank you for the long-suffering, patient endurance, and the bold faith of people in the past. May we live by faith and not by sight. Thank you that you did not withhold your very son from us, and surely you will give us And add to that all the things that you know we need from your goodness. We trust in you. Our hope is set upon you. Strengthen our faith where it's weak. We ask all of this 
in the name of the one who went to the cross, Jesus. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.